Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we're in Hebrews 11. And let me just say this, we're going to spend probably more time in this one chapter than we have in a lot of other chapters. And the reason why is it's so rich. It's, it's just got so many Old Testament allusions to Old Testament characters that um, I just don't think it would do justice to just kind of skip over. Um, and so we're really only going to be looking at um, the first five verses tonight. And so let's read together Hebrews chapter 11. Let's just read verses 1 through 3. This is kind of the setup. Um, so let's just, before we read this, let's just kind of backtrack. Um, last week, the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews, the writer was telling us not to shrink back, to hold fast that we are to be those who have faith. And he kind of introduced the issue of faith. In chapter 11, he's going to flesh out what faith really looks like based upon the example of these Old Testament characters. Okay, so Chapter 11 is obviously on the heels of chapter 10. So chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So as we start Hebrews chapter 11, here's the ultimate question that we've got to ask. What is true, authentic Christian faith? Now, I didn't put this in your notes, but is there such a thing as non-Christian faith? There must be. <laughs> James 2.9. Just turn one book over. I think it's James 2.9. Come on in, guys. James 2.9. Come on in. I think that's where it is. So James 2.9 says this. Am I in the right place? Am I in, is it James 2.9? Or no, is it 2? No, it's 2.9. Yeah, 2.19. James 2.19. I'm sorry. I was one letter off. One number off. James 2.19. You believe that God is one... You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So demons have faith. Is it saving faith? Is it faith that gives them salvation? Is it true Christian faith? No, so you can believe. You can have faith. I can say here tonight, you know what? I believe that the Broncos are going to win this Sunday. (laughs) But that would be more like I kind of hope they're going to win. I believe, um, you can say I believe a lot of things, but there's what is true Christian authentic faith? And what the author does is he's going to give us three answers here in those verses. Three answers to what authentic faith is. And here's the first. First of all, faith is expressed in a life of confident assurance and things not yet seen. Things not yet seen. What does he say there in verse 1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. 
Let me just let that hang out there. What are, what are things not seen? We'll, we'll talk about that. Now, we have to pay careful attention. How does he start the sentence? Now. Do you normally start a sentence with now? It's a transition sentence that carries us up back to the conclusion of chapter 10. All the things that we saw in chapter 10. And so he's going to give us this idea that faith is really a confident life in things not yet seen. And he uses a word there, assurance. Does your say assurance? Faith is the assurance? The reality, the assurance, the reality. It really means solid assurance, confidence, being certain and sure, having rock solid certainty. He also uses the word conviction. So two words there, assurance and conviction. That's how he defines faith, assurance and conviction. Do these words sound like just mamby-pamby words or are they strong words? Assurance, conviction, I'm solidly convinced. And so what are these things he's convinced of? What's he say? Things yet not seen hmm okay what exactly are the things or are these events that are not yet seen that that we're so confident and assured of that we know our present realities for us as christians what are these things not yet seen now the easy answer is what heaven anybody seen heaven anybody seen jesus Supposedly did. Okay, yeah. So, But in reality, how many in this room have seen heaven? <laughs> anybody, okay. And, that, and that's a fair answer. Anybody in this room? Okay. So let's go back to, the, to, to chapter 10 and talk about these things that he's talking about. Um, one of them is in 1034, what does he say? We have a better possession and an abiding one. We have a better and an abiding possession. We've got to look forward to heaven. In 1035, we have confident assurance and a great reward. We will be rewarded one day for our faith in heaven. And then in 1036, we have a confident assurance that we will receive what is promised. So when he's talking about these things not yet seen, really what it is, and it's very simple, None other than the full consummation of our eternal salvation when we live forever in our glorified bodies in the new heavens, the new earth, and we see Christ face to face and enjoy the amazing presence of God forever in eternal joy. Now, that's a great statement of what we get to look forward to. But how often does our day-to-day life live according to that reality? Come on in, guys. You're fine. Think about that for a moment. Can you even imagine having a glorified body? Not today. (laughs) Can any of you even imagine seeing Jesus face to face? Can any of you imagine living in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity? We can imagine it, but we haven't seen it, but yet we hope for it. And if you're a Christian, these things are ours. It's It's our reward. It's our inheritance. So true faith, what the writer's saying is we live day to day with this assurance, with this conviction, 
in things that we don't see. How do we normally live our lives? By things that we see. We're wired to have to see, touch, taste, smell, control things. Christianity is we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's very difficult in this world that's tangible because what do we want to see? We want to see, God, show me proof that you're real. Or, or we want some type of token or some type of visible expression of God so that we can control God. That was what the golden calf was, you remember? <clears throat> we don't want God just to speak to us from the mountain. We want a God we can control, so let's make a golden calf. And we'll call it our God and control it because we want something we can see, touch, taste, and smell. And Christianity says we worship a real God. Jesus is in heaven. We don't see him. We don't see heaven yet. We don't have a glorified body yet. We don't have a reward yet. We don't have salvation yet. But we live every day with the confident conviction and assurance that we're going to get that. So I've kind of explained what I'm going to put up here on the screen. So what is faith? It is living day by day in the expectation that there are things that we do not yet see, namely a life of endless joy in heaven with Christ. And that future, that hope, gives us motivation to remain steadfast in the present. Whenever you get discouraged, whenever you get tried, whenever you get tempted, you have two choices. You can look at the situation around you, or you can look to your home in heaven and realize that that's what you have to look forward to. So here's the tension. We live in the not yet. Are we in heaven yet? Are we experiencing the full joy of our salvation face-to-face with Christ? No, where are we? We're in a fallen world. We've got distractions. We've got temptations. We've got allurements. And we've got seductions all around us. You can't. You can't get to the bad times without faith. I mean, some people medicate. They self-medicate either through alcohol or drugs or TV or binge eating. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to list a bunch of sins, but when somebody faces a hard time or a distraction or a temptation, they're putting faith in something. It's just the, the question is, here's the question, guys. The question is not, do you have faith? Everybody has faith. The question is, who's the object of your faith? That's the real question. Who are you putting your faith in? Because you're putting your faith in something. Come on in, Julie. You're putting your faith in something. And if it's anything other than Christ, it's not in the right place. Now, when the text says that faith is, is abiding, constant, lasting assurance and solid confidence that my future salvation in heaven is as real, it affects the way that I live now. Do you guys know the story behind the great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? Sad story. Okay. Um, the, the author of that hymn was a lawyer in Chicago, and he sent his family off to England for vacation. His wife and I think it was his four daughters. Don't, don't, don't get, I'm not going to get all of the facts correct. I'm doing this off of memory. This is back in the late 1800s. They're on a boat. And they all die. He gets word back that his entire family has died. And then I think his business burns down. And so here he has, he's lost his whole family. His business is burned down. And then he actually is going to go back to England to bury his family. And so he's on a ship 
And he asked the captain, I, I want to know the exact spot where the, where the ship went down where my family died. And, and, the, and the captain says, well, we're, we're right up close to that. It's there at that spot that he writes it as well. So let me read to you the words that he sings from that hymn. He says, Lord, haste the day. This is the last verse. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You know how the first verse starts? When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that was taught me to say it as well with my soul. But in that last verse, he says, Lord, I want you to bring about the day, haste the day, quicken the day, speed up the day when everything that I've been living by faith actually becomes sight. And that's the day that Christ comes back when we will fully see him. That's the day when our faith will be full. I mean, we live by faith now in what we don't see, but at the day that Christ comes back, we will see him and our faith will be fully consummated. But then in this world, what happens? Well, listen to other verses of the song. He says, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And we won't sing it tonight, but, it, you know, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And I think only a true Christian can sing that song. <clears throat> Where you know in your heart of hearts that no matter what happens around you, no matter what you're going through, you can honestly say in your heart of hearts, it is well. Not because things are going well, but because my faith is in the one who holds his anchor in my life. And I can't see, but yet I have a confident assurance in things not yet seen. And my faith is strong, not because my faith is strong, but the one who have, I have faith in is strong. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's number one. That's the first definition he gives us of faith. It's this active assurance, confidence in things not yet seen. But here's the second thing. Faith is evidenced in a life of active and consistent obedience. We see this in verse 2. What does he say in verse 2? For by it, faith, <coughs> excuse me, the people of old, and he's talking about Old Testament saints here, because in the context he's going to begin to list off a bunch of them, they received their condemnation. So the writer here introduces the people of old, the ancients, as some translations may say. David, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Joshua. And so what he's saying is by living a life of confident assurance in things not yet seen, these Old Testament believers receive their commendation. They receive their good report. Now let's just stop and talk about what, what does that mean? They received a good commendation. What are some different translations? What does yours say? They, they won God's approval by it. They won God's approval. They received their commendation. Does anybody else have a different translation? They obtained a good report. They received a good testimony. Really, the Greek word used here, guys, is the word martyrios, which is where we get the Greek word martyr. But martyr, in the, that, that Greek word really means to be a witness. 
to be a positive witness. And so what it means here is this. It means to gain approval. It can literally be translated, these people of old received a positive testimony or approval from God himself. In other words, and this is an amazing thing to think about, God himself testified to their faith. God stepped up to the witness stand in the courtroom. God gave a good report about these Old Testament believers. God observed their lives of faith, and it brought him great joy. And as a way to put his stamp of approval on their lives, he inspired the sacred scripture writer to give a permanent written record of their lives of faith. And he goes on to do that for the rest of the the chapter. What about those Old Testament people was so amazing? that we just sometimes take for granted? Did they ever see Jesus in the flesh? Did they ever hear Him teach the Sermon on the Mount? Did they ever see Him die on the cross and rise again and see Pentecost? No. But did they believe in all of that? In a sense, their future, their faith in what the future would hold was a great faith because they had faith in things that had not even yet happened that we look back on this side and we've seen them happen, like the resurrection. And so when they are commended for their faith, their faith was something that was active. It it showed itself up in obedience. Um, And we need to be real careful when we talk about faith. Faith is more than just having mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Faith is more than just knowing what the Bible says. True Christian faith is lived out in consistency in an active, radical faith that obeys God at His Word. Have you ever heard somebody say this? I accepted Christ as Savior. I've been forgiven of my sins. I got my free ticket to heaven. God's a forgiving God. It's all about grace. So now I can go live how I want. Ever heard anybody say something like that? Is that biblical? Do you have permission to not live a life of active faith just because you're saved by grace? Let me give you an example. Does anybody know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? We should all have it memorized, right? It's not on your sheet. It's not on the screen, but we should all have it memorized, hopefully. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Next verse. This is on your screen. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James 1.22, what does that say? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, so faith, if there's not, let me just say this. I want to give an expression, and it's not new to me. It's really what John MacArthur has said, but he, he says it this way. Faith works. Now, what what does that mean? Faith works. You can take it a bunch of different ways. You've got to have faith in Christ, and then works come second. Yes. Yes, you will be, you will live. Basically, when I say faith works, I'm saying this. True faith in Jesus Christ is always played out in active obedience to His commands. 
You don't just sit on the sidelines with faith. You don't just like kind of say, I have faith. And then it doesn't impact how you live. It's got to be active. It's active. It's active. It's consistent. It works. Now let's look at the third thing here. It's in verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the, by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. A little deep here. Here's number three. Faith is grounded in a life that is a reaction to God's powerful word. Verse 3 is an illustration of verse 1. What does verse 1 say? We have faith in things not yet seen. What does verse 3 say? What is seen is made out of things that were not seen. So what is everybody experiencing right now on planet Earth? It's to- Every single person on this planet is experiencing some type of faith. And what is that? Somehow this planet got here. Now, you may believe it was God that created, or you may believe it's the Big Bang, but either way, the fact that you're here today means that you have faith that the, the world got here. So you can look around at the world and say, wow, what is seen was not here at one point, and now it is here. But to make the Big Bang, yeah, somebody had to be behind the Big Bang. Yeah, I always believe the Big Bang. God said, let there be light, bang, and there it was. You know, um, that was the Big Bang to me. So in verse 3, we are introduced to this very important little construction. What does verse 3 say? By faith. It's going to be used over and over and over again. By faith, by faith, by faith. And the way that it is um, constructed in the original language, you don't need to know that it's called a a dative. It really means acting on the basis of faith or acting out on your faith. So when you see that word by faith, always think in your mind, it is active and it is consistent. It's not passive. It's not mamby-pamby. It's active. It's consistent. It's obedient. And what, what do we have faith in? How was the universe created? What does he say there? The universe was created by the word of God. Okay. What does he say there, though? What is seen was made out of what is not seen. Do you guys know when God says, in the beginning, God created? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God did what? Created. Hebrew word, bahra. Now, I don't want to get into a huge Hebrew lesson, but that word in the original language means to create out of nothing. And it's only reserved for God. It's never used of humans. And that's really what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is that God and some theologians call ex nihilo, which means God created out of nothing. Now, think about that for a moment. We're used to having something to create with, aren't we? Even if it's dirt. Even if it's putty. I mean, everything that this building was built with, there was something there before it. And there was something there before that. And when God created the universe, there was nothing there for Him to create with. He spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. That's powerful. Now, here's the thing about it. Was anybody there to see God do it? Not even angels. 
No, the only people there to witness it would be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Any of us there, any human being there to see the creation of the world. So what do we have to take the creation of the world by? By faith. But okay, but you weren't there to see it. So how are you going to believe that this world was created by God if you weren't there to see it? You're all good Missourians. The show me state. You got to show it to me, God. Okay, you're exactly right, Jerry. What does the text say there? By faith, we understand that the universe was created. Why? By the word of God. How do we know that God did it if we weren't there? Well, what's he done for us? He's recorded it in his written word in the first chapter of Genesis. So what we're saying here about faith is it's not blind faith. It's faith in the written, recorded Word of God. And so what we believe is when we live by faith, we live by faith in the powerful Word of God. We believe that the universe was created by God because God said it in His Word. And thus, by implication, everything else that God says in His Word, we must believe and we must obey. So, A life of faith is not just this fuzzy faith that's just a faith. It is an active, consistent faith in Christ and in a what? An obedience to His written word. His written word. Faith is a reaction to God's word. In other words, what we find revealed to us in God's word is the absolute truth... And we respond or we react to it with faith. And here's a big rub here, guys. Faith is not just believing the Bible to be true, but actually acting upon it with consistent obedience. See the big difference there? I can go out into northeastern Colorado today, probably, and I could go door to door. I could go to Walmart. I could maybe even go to NJC. I could go wherever else there's a public place. And I can ask a lot of people, and I, and I bet you in this town, 60% of the people, if I ask them this question, is the Bible God's word? Do you think like most of the town would say yes? There, you may find a few atheists out there. You may find a few Satanists. I don't know. You may find a few people that think, no, it's not God's word. But for the most part, let's even say 50%. Okay, now let me ask those same 50%. Do you consistently and actively live in obedience to God's Word? How do you think the answer would be then? (coughs) One or two. One or two, okay. So is faith just belief that God's Word is true? Or is it actively living in obedience to that Word? I've said this many times. I'm going to go on a digression here. Is that okay? I'm just thinking off the top of my head. Is that okay if we go on a digression? Okay. I've got the pen, and I've got the marker, and I've got the floor. Um, I don't have the microphone, though. Okay, so I've got the eraser. Oh, okay. Okay, so let's just talk. This is not in your notes. This is just me talking off the top of my head. But it's biblical, so I'm not just making it up. The Bible is, would we say the Bible is inspired by God? It's God-breathed? Yes. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God. Would we believe that the Bible contains no errors? Okay. Would we believe that the Bible is authoritative? Okay. Here's the problem with most evangelical, not most evangelical Christians. 
Almost all evangelical Bible-believing Christians are going to give lip service to the Bible being inspired. No, no Bible-believing evangelical Christians can say, no, I don't believe it's God's inspired word. Most evangelical Christians are going to say, no, I don't think the Bible has any errors. So theologically, they agree with the nature of Scripture, but when it comes to the Scripture being authoritative, what does that mean? You ask them the question, okay, if it truly is God's Word and it contains no errors, does this Word have the authority to tell me how to live and what to believe consistently? How are they going to answer that? It's one thing to say, I believe the Bible. It's another thing to say, I live my life under the authority consistently of the Bible. But you have to know what the Bible says. Exactly. You have to know what the Bible says. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you guys a statement, and some of you have heard this before, so don't answer it. And if you do, that's all right. I will make a statement, and at first glance, tell me what you think of this statement. As Christians, we should apply the Bible to our lives. True or false? It's a trick question. <laughs> Technically, it's false. Here's what, here's, a, let me, all right, so that's the way I said it. As Christians, we should apply the Bible to our lives. Let me, let me restate it and, and ask it a different way and see if this way sounds better. As Christians, we should adjust our lives under the authority of the Bible. Which sounds better? The first or the second? The second, because what's happening? If we, quote-unquote, apply the Bible to our lives, who's the authority? Our lives. Our lives are the authority, and we apply what part of the Bible we want to apply. If I want to apply this part to my life, cool. If I don't want to apply that part to my life, that's cool. What I want to apply is what I want to apply. When you say, I'm going to adjust my life under the authority of the Bible, what's the authority? The Bible, and then you must adjust your life under it. Okay? So let's take it one step further. What is the sufficiency of Scripture? This is a whole other topic. The sufficiency of Scripture says this alone is our sole, sole source of authority for faith and practice, and there really isn't, shouldn't be any other outside thing telling us how to do stuff. So let me give you an example. There are a lot of evangelical Christians today, pastors and church leaders, that for lack of a better term, are trying to find gimmicks and ploys and trinkets and weird stuff to get people excited about God because the Bible alone is not sufficient. It's not sexy enough. We've got to add something to it. So let me give you an example. And I'm going to pick on somebody tonight, okay? So if, you, if you've read this book and you like this book, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you can be mad at me afterwards, but I think this book is a perfect example of somebody that doesn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Anybody ever heard the book, The Circle Maker? Oh, good. Anybody read The Circle Maker? Good. You're, oh, good. I get past, it warms the pastor's heart. It's a very, very popular book by a guy called Mark Batterson. It's very, very popular. It's called The Circle Maker. Here's the point of his book. He takes a teaching from an ancient Jewish rabbi who taught that you, if you want to go pray something and make sure it's going to happen, you go either draw a circle or pray a circle around something, and you pray in circles around something claiming that, and that's the prescribed method of prayer. Okay, so let me ask you a question. 
where do we get our source for prayer? Do we get it from a Jewish rabbi, not even Christian, who talks about praying circles? Is, is, that, is that sufficient? Is that the sufficiency of Scripture? No, it's outside Scripture. I will tell you there is a Jewish rabbi who taught us how to pray. His name's Jesus, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what people are saying is, you know what? Jesus' words in Matthew 5 about how to pray, Matthew 6, I'm sorry, about how to pray, that's just not, that's not cutting it for us. We've got to go outside the Bible and find something more you know, cool. Oh, wow, we've come across this Jewish rabbi that drew circles around things. I'm going to write a whole book called The Circle Maker. And so it's a huge popular book now where people are drawing circles and praying circles and doing all this stuff to, to get, you know. And what was it a few years back? Many years back, the prayer of Jabez. Before that, it was, I mean, it, there's always something that comes down that the, the clear teachings, the simple teaching of the Bible is just not, I hate to use the word sexy, so it's not sexy or exciting enough, so we've got to add to it. Okay, there's my rant. It's over. We can move on. But faith is believing the Bible. Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear him. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now, how would we know that would happen if God had not told the scripture writer to write that down? Was the scripture writer there to see God do that? So how did the scripture writer know God did that? Unless God inspired him to write that. Okay, so um, let's turn the page. So, so, so three definitions of faith there that he sets the stage for. Now, he's going to begin to list some Old Testament people who lived by active, obedient faith. And it's interesting, he doesn't start with Adam and Eve. I wonder why. <laughs> Just saying. He starts with Abel, who was the son of Adam and Eve. So let's read verses 4 and 5. Hebrews 11, 4 and 5. By faith, or acting on the basis of faith, or having active, obedient faith. So, so every time that word by faith is, have that image in your mind. Active, obedient faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The first Old Testament saint we were introduced to is Abel, the son of Adam and Eve. Remember, by faith... Faith works. Faith is active. Faith is, is obedient. Hebrews, I mean Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've also obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. In other words, true active faith is going to be proved out in, um, in, in active obedience. And so the question is, well, what did Abel do by faith? What was a big act of faith that he did? Well, it's right there in the text. What does it say? He offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. 
And you're thinking, okay, it's not telling me much. I, I, I don't know this. So let me give it to you in a sentence, and then we'll go back to Genesis and see it. What we see in Abel is that true faith is evidenced in a life that worships God with outward expressions of wholehearted obedience. Now, let's go back to Genesis chapter 4 and read the story of Cain and Abel. So keep your finger in Hebrews. And we're going to be doing this over the next few weeks. We're going to read this, the passage in Hebrews, and then we're going to go back and read the Old Testament passage, and, and we're going to see it. It's interesting because I like Hebrews because it's a sermon. It is a sermon. And he's giving commentary on the Old Testament. So there's some things that, ha- like you read the Old Testament, and there's some things that aren't answered. And then when you come to Hebrews, he answers some questions that weren't answered, especially when Abraham. Like you read the Old Testament passage, and you're like, I didn't see that in the Old Testament passage. But the writer of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interprets that event for us and fills in the gaps and tells us what it meant, means. So let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Now Adam knew his wife Eve. Now, knew does not mean, oh, I know, I know. hey, Eve, cool, now I know you. Let me shake your hand. It's yada, it's a Hebrew expression for they had relations, okay? He knew her in the conjugal way. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. See her statement there? Who's in charge of this birth? I, it's the first birth. So what's she thinking? Look what I did. It was painful, but look what I did. With the help of the Lord, obviously. I mean, I want to be a good Christian and, and give him a little bit of credit. So I did this great thing, but obviously, you know, God, God was there. He helped. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. And you know the rest of the story. He kills his brother. You want to know what the word able means? I want you guys to do a little exercise for me. Say able kind of with a whisper. Everybody say it. Able. It means breath. Vapor. And actually in the Hebrew, it's Abel. Abel. Is that some foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Abel? Was he on the scene very long? He was but a breath. He was but a vapor. I mean, he shows up for a few verses and then he's killed. But in those few verses that he shows up, what does he do? Why is he commended for his faith? He, the writer of Hebrews says he brings a more acceptable sacrifice. So you've got two sacrifices. Often when we look at Cain and Abel, the big thing we think about is that Cain killed his brother Abel. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the punchline of the story. But the real issue is what did they bring to God? Okay? Two differences. First of all, let's just write on the board. What was Cain's occupation? He was a farmer. 
What was Abel's occupation? Shepherd. Now, is there anything intrinsically wrong about being a shepherd or being a farmer? No. Those of you that are farmers are like, there's nothing wrong with being a farmer. And those of you that are you know, ranchers and shepherds, there's nothing. so there's nothing inherently wrong with his occupation. The question is, what was the nature of the sacrifice? What was brought? And so we see two things about their sacrifices. What does Cain bring? Something. Something. <laughs> a fruit. We'll get to that later. What does, what does Abel bring? Firstborn uh, and fat portions of an animal sacrifice, right? So right off the top of the bat, you should notice a huge difference between what Abel brings and what Cain brings. Here's what I think is the first difference about their sacrifices. Both would have known directly from God what they were supposed to bring. Now, the text doesn't tell us that. But what do you know about Genesis 3.21? What did God do to their parents right after they sinned? The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. How did God do that? He had to kill an animal. Now, what God did when he had mercy on Adam and Eve was that he killed an animal, and we see this as a picture of substitution by blood sacrifice, foreshadowing what Jesus himself would do on the cross. So apparently, now the text doesn't tell us this, so we have to read it between the lines, but apparently, because God had already demonstrated this one chapter earlier, the proper way to come to God was on His terms with the sacrifice of an animal whose blood had been shed. Don't you think Adam and Eve had spent years teaching these two boys and telling them the stories? Think about it, around the campfire. I'm going to tell it to you one more time, Abel and Cain and Abel. We were toast. We were naked. We were walking around sowing fig leaves. And we were dead. And we thought we were going to be sent to hell. And God comes and says, you know, Adam, why are you hiding? And, and your mother and I were freaking out because God was there speaking to us. And we were, we were under his condemnation. But you know what God did? He killed an animal for us. And he clothed this as an act of grace. Remember that, Cain and Abel. God is so gracious. He killed an animal instead of killing us. Now, the Bible doesn't say they told those stories. So we have to kind of fill in the gaps. But you would think that... By the, the time these guys are adults, they would have known, okay, the way to bring a sacrifice to God, the way to bring worship to God is through animal sacrifice. And you also get a hint there in verse 3. What does verse 3 say? At the end, in the course of time. Some translations say at the end of days. Some scholars have led them to believe that that may be in a specific time when God would require a regular sacrifice, even before the sacrificial system. But here's the difference. What sets Abel's faith apart from Cain's is that Abel comes with an expression of his conscious need for atonement. Only the blood sacrifice of another was acceptable to God. What does Cain come saying? I know God's prescribed way of sacrifice and of worship is through a blood atonement of an animal that's killed as a picture that I should be killed but God is killing another. What does Cain bring? In contrast, Cain brings produce. Instead of relying upon a substitutionary atonement, what does he rely upon? What he can produce. 
He may have even thought, you know what, I worked harder than Abel. Think about this. If you're a farmer versus to go out and kill a lamb and then to, to grow crops, which is harder? Unless you really love the lamb. Those of you that are farmers, how long does it take to bring a produce, to bring, to bring a harvest? It takes some sweat, some planting, some harvesting. Okay, I got a sheep over here. I can just go kill him, slaughter him, and, you know. Cain may have thought, you know, my brother's not even doing, you know, he's not doing hardly anything. I'm over here sweating. I'm over here, and, I, and I'm bringing the produce to God. I'm bringing stuff that I've made with my own hands, and he just goes and kills an animal. And God doesn't look at my sacrifice. Why not, God? I worked harder than he did. So number one, not only was it the wrong kind of sacrifice, but here's the second thing that you also see in the text. It was given in the wrong manner. What does Cain bring? My ESV says in verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of of the fruit of the ground. In the original Hebrew text, the word for fruit is in the singular. He could have brought one banana or one apple. I mean, it could have been a very small harvest. I got to keep the rest of this for me, so I'll give God my leftovers. And, and you know, I've got this huge cluster of grapes. We don't know what the fruit was. But think about, let's think about this huge cluster of grapes. And he comes trotting into God's presence. Here's my one grape, God. (laughs) Or here's my little cluster of grapes. But I'm keeping back all of this that I produced from from the ground. And what does Abel do? Abel says he brings what? The firstborn, the most important, and the fat portions. He brings the firstborn and the fat portions. Which shows that he's bringing God his best. He's bringing God um, wholehearted obedience, um, Cain's bringing leftovers. It's this, Abel's got this heartfelt sacrificial need for an atonement. He understands atonement. He's bringing the sacrifice on God's terms and in God's way. Cain doesn't understand that. He's not bringing the right kind of sacrifice and he's bringing it in the wrong manner. And that's why God looks at Abel as more favorable than he looks at Cain because Cain's bringing leftovers and he's bringing it in the wrong way. So, Exactly. That's exact. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, "Whoops, let's go back there." That's why the writer of Hebrews says that Abel is is acting on the basis of faith. Now, here's where God's grace comes in. What does God say to Cain? Look at your text. Verse, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regret. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at my brother. Things aren't working out. My little fruit didn't go very far. He didn't like the fruit. But what, what does God say there in verse 6? Why are you angry and why is your face falling? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desires for you, but you must rule over it. If you do well, what's God saying to, to Cain there? You've got a second chance to go bring me the right, aton- the right sacrifice in the right way. In an act of grace, God is saying, Cain, listen, 
I am showing you a second chance. I'm showing you grace. Go do well and you'll be accepted. Go kill an animal and bring me the fat portions and bring it as an act of love, as an act of worship. Don't bring it to me because you have to bring it to me. Don't bring me your leftovers. I'm giving you a second chance. But if you don't, Cain, I'm giving you a warning. It's like a wild animal at your door. If you don't, that sin's going to crouch upon you and it's going to master you. Now, what do we know about Cain? Does he repent? Does he go do the right sacrifice? No, he gets so angry, he goes and kills his brother. Here's the point. Right from the very beginning of the Bible, God gives him a second chance. Anytime God gives you a second chance, you better take it. Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that's exactly going what, what's going on. God's kindness here in Cain is leading him should be leading him to repent and bring the right sacrifice. If he brings the right offering with the right attitude, he would be accepted. So let's talk about Christian faith here for a moment because the writer of Hebrews is telling us what it looks like in the life of Abel. It responds with repentance to God's mercy and kindness. That's what true faith is. When God gives you a second chance, when God confronts you with your sin, you're heartbroken over that. You respond to His mercy. You respond to His kindness. You repent. You, you, you do things right the second time that He's given you that. You don't get all angry. You don't bring your leftovers. Um, you don't get in a jealous rage and go murder your brother and try to cover it up. Now, what does it say about Abel's faith? Let's just go back to um, Hebrews for a moment. Because it says that he was commended for his faith. Remember how earlier the writer of the Old Testament, or the writer of Hebrews, back in chapter verse two, said these ancients, these old Old Testament saints, were commended. They received a good report. It says the same thing here about Abel. There in verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his faith. And through his faith, though he dies, he still speaks. Was Abel righteous as a result of giving the sacrifice? What made God accept his sacrifice? Was it his works? Or was it heartfelt obedience that showed that he was already in a right relationship with God? Do you bring your stuff to the table in order to earn God's favor or do you worship God because you've already got His favor through what Christ has done? What was Abel understanding all along? I need atonement. I need forgiveness. I need the sacrificial substitute of another to take my place. And even though Jesus hadn't come, He understood substitutionary atonement. For us, on this side of the cross, true authentic faith says, I understand that I should be dead without Christ and that his cross covers me and because I'm accepted in God's sight because of Jesus I, I joyfully and I willfully come and worship him not to earn God's favor not to somehow earn my salvation but it was it's, it's an outward expression of my faith because remember back up in chapter 10 verse 38 the righteous will live by their faith so we just need to be careful. In other words, Abel wasn't saved because of his works. His works showed evidence of his salvation. But there's an interesting statement there about Abel. What does it say? At the end of verse 4. Though he's dead, he still speaks. The breath. Think, what's Abel's name? Breath. 
Breath is still speaking. Vapor is still speaking. Is Cain still speaking? Cain is not still speaking, but Cain is spoken of. And every time Cain is mentioned, it's always related to something demonic or wicked. Okay, listen to Matthew 23, 34 through 35. This is what Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's pronouncing judgment on the Pharisees for their hard-hearted disobedience. Here's what he says to the Pharisees. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some whom you flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. In other words, what he's saying, what's, he, what's, he saying to the, what's Jesus saying to the Pharisees? You are acting in the way of Cain. You're murderous, you're rebellious, you're disobedient, and Abel is recognized, guys and gals, as the first martyr in the Bible. You think about Stephen, he's the first martyr in the New Testament, or actually, you know, who's the first martyr in the Bible? The first kid, Abel. Why is he martyred? Is it because he was such a good guy? He's martyred because of his faith. He had active faith in a substitutionary atonement, gave his firstborn portions and fat portions to God, and his brother persecuted him and killed him because of his faith. And the writer of Hebrews says, Abel still speaks today. But when you talk about Cain, now let's talk about Cain. Are you raising Cain? 1 John 3, 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was of the evil one. When Cain's talked about, it's related to to the devil. When Abel's talked about, the breath is the martyr. At the end of verse 4, Abel still speaks. In other words, his testimony and example of heartfelt devotion and obedience to God is recorded for us in the Bible, and he still speaks, which is an irony. What's the irony? The man whose name was vapor or breath is still speaking today while his brother Cain is characterized with evil and rebellion. Abel gave generously to the Lord. And I think active faith gives generously to the Lord. In his day, it was the firstborn and fat portions. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the faith of Abel. He was a cheerful giver. He was a giver. He gave the first. That's how, that's how he demonstrated his faith. And that didn't say he didn't give so he could get saved. He gave as a result of salvation. So I would say this. One of the true, this, was not, this is not in your notes, but I could probably go on a long time on this, but you probably don't want me to. One of the, one of the, the, chief, one of the chief characteristics of a faithful Christian 
a Christian who's exercising faith is that you're a generous giver. That could be financially. That can be of your time. It can be of your talents. But, but if you're stingy with your money, if you're stingy with your time, if you're stingy with your talents, you're not exercising a biblical type of active faith like Abel. You're, you're almost like Cain. Cain gave lip service. What did Cain say? Well, I kind of have to give this, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the time for the sacrifice. God expects it. I might as well just give him my leftovers. Here's my fruit. Here's my pear. Here's my peach. I don't know. Here's my banana. And Jesus said this about that. In Matthew 15, 7 through 9, he's talking to the Pharisees again. He says, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You can honor God with your lips all day long and have your heart be so far away from him. God's not so much concerned with what you say about him. God is concerned about your heart and what you do for him. Um, Because anybody can talk a good talk. And this comes down to worship and idolatry. What was Cain worshiping? When you think about it, what was Cain really worshiping? Was he worshiping God? He was really, in a way, worshiping his produce, wasn't he? Here's what I've produced. Here's what gives me comfort. Here's what feeds me. Here's what I need. And if, God, you want a part of it, I'll give you just a little token bit, but don't you dare touch what's mine. That was what Cain was doing. Abel came and said, listen, God, everything you've given is yours anyway. And I'm going to not hold anything back. I'm going to give you the firstborn portions. I'm going to give you the fat portions. I'm going to give because I want to give it to you. I don't need to cling to this stuff. I know you'll take care of me. So we worship what we value. Every single person on planet Earth is a worshiper. Same thing with faith. I said it earlier. Whether people worship is not the issue. The issue is what we worship. We were created to worship And yet we've done the most tragic and horrific thing. We've made this pitiful exchange. Let's just go back to our idolatry sermon series last fall. And Paul tells us in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what do they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So idolatry is exchanging the glory of God. What are you trading it in for? Created things. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what is idolatry again? It's exchanging. You're exchanging the glory and the truth of God for a lie and for created things and you're putting your hope and your stock and your confidence in what you think those things are going to give you. And that's exactly what Cain did. Cain put his hope in things, his fruit, and not in the glory of God, in the truth of God. 1 John 5, 21, Little children, keep yourselves from 
idols. I don't know why I have that verse in there twice, but Romans 1.25 is in there twice. It's because you maybe needed to hear it twice. So what we end up doing is serving the idol, the created thing. We serve or we become a slave to what we worship. In other words, you become a slave or a servant to what you value most. And if that object of your worship is not Christ, then you become in bondage to your idols, whether you even know it or not. And that's what Cain did. Cain's sin was looking religious, giving God his leftovers. In stark contrast, Abel gave of his best the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions which demonstrated a passionate, generous heart of devotion to the living God. He found in Christ his ultimate satisfaction, realized that he was worthy of all worship and that nothing should be held back. But in the end, is this really about Abel? One thing that we need to be careful when we read Hebrews chapter 11, this is the hall of faith, right? Heroes of the faith. Who's the real hero of the Bible? Jesus. So in the end, this is really not a story about the faith of Abel, but about Christ being the better and perfect Abel. I want you, have you ever thought about the comparisons between Abel and Christ? Think about it for a moment. Just like Abel, Christ was killed by violent men who disobeyed God. And Christ's blood cries out for all who would place their trust in Him. Abel obeyed God and was commended for his faith. Jesus, the perfect and sinless Son, was the better Abel and that He always did what pleased His Father and obeyed Him perfectly. He was commended by His Father. Remember what God said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased was Abel raised from the dead? No, but his blood still speaks. God vindicated Jesus, who was killed, and put his ultimate stamp of approval with an exclamation point on Jesus' faithful obedience by raising him from the dead. And just like Abel's faith still speaks today, Christ still speaks today because he's the resurrected Savior who is alive. We'll eventually get to this, but I want you to keep it in mind as we go through chapter 11. All throughout chapter 11, the writer gives us these Old Testament believers as examples of faith, but he never ever once tells us to fix our eyes on these people. What does Hebrews 12, 2 say? Let's turn down to the very end. Well, not the very end, but Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to consider the faith of these Old Testament saints and be encouraged by their faith as examples, but we're never to fix our eyes upon them. We're always to fix our eyes on Jesus because that's who their faith was in. Same thing with us and our faith being in Christ.